listening to the Art of Fulfillment podcast. We interview the world's most fulfilled people to share with you the strategies, techniques, and ideas that can help you master your own art of fulfillment. Life isn't about external success. It's all about fulfillment. Or in other words, how you feel about yourself when you are by yourself. What's up, Fulfillment Seekers? It's Joe Corsione here, and boy, do we have an amazing episode here. I think you're going to be absolutely blown away by the transformation that this person has made in their life, and um, if you're going through a situation right now where you don't think you can get out of it, or maybe you're not proud of the person that you are right now and you want to become something, but you don't believe that you can really do it, listen to this episode because... This person went from someone who was not at rock bottom, but I would even say below rock bottom, like the depths of hell. And he was able to overcome such, such terrible situations in his life to become someone who is not only successful, a leader in the personal development field, but ultimately someone who is fulfilled in their life. So I really think you're going to enjoy this episode. We're going to have him on again in the future to go even more in depth into what we talked about, but I think this episode is a great starting point. So in this episode, we talk with Adi Jaffe. He is a nationally recognized expert on mental health, addiction, relationships, and shame. He was a UCLA lecturer in the psychology department at that school for the better part of the decade, and he was the executive director director and co-founder of one of the most progressive mental health treatment facilities in the country until he started Ignited, which is a company whose goal is to help others level up in every facet of their lives, including relationships, career, and well-being. Although Adi is an expert now, he was once a heavy meth dealer and a heavy meth user who was at one time facing 10 plus years in prison. But as you'll hear in this powerful episode, he was able to turn this pain into healing, and now he's helping others to do the same thing. So please help me in welcoming the author of the book, The Abstinence Myth, Adi Jaffe. Welcome to the show, Adi. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, man. Of course. And and we were talking before a little bit about, you know, how I just resonated so much with your story when I learned about it, um, you know, your battle with addiction. And honestly, if there's any doubt from our listeners on whether or not that they can turn their life around, I think your story is a one where you can really convince them because your transformation is not only impressive, but I think it's just absolutely crazy. And it doesn't even seem like it, it, it could be real, but, but you really are a persona of change and transformation. No matter what position I think someone's in, they can really take from your story and get that inspiration to change. So how did you ultimately transform into the person that you are now from the background that you had and, and share a little context of where you were um, and then how you got to, you know, the place of consciousness and awareness that you are now? Absolutely. And let me, um, just start out with saying that that's pretty much why I share my story everywhere all the time is because it would actually probably be a little bit easier for me in life if I just hit it because right. I mean, this people are going to hear in a minute, it, it makes you a little uncomfortable to know whether you really want to hang with me and interact when you kind of understand where I came from. And that's happened to me, honestly, a bunch of times. It probably mm-hmm. happens a couple of times a year where somebody that I want to do business with or somebody that want to interview me or something along those lines, they start hearing the story like, yeah, that's cool, but I don't really know if I want to put my name behind you. And I get it. Um, I've been through a lot and I've, I've landed on the wrong side, at least in terms of society of things quite a few times. And so that, that can be frightening to people. But the reason I keep telling the story over and over is 
to make sure that other people who are struggling right now and are thinking to themselves, damn it, is it always going to be like this? Is this as good as it gets? Mm-hmm. To always tell you, you know what? It doesn't have to. Um, you can have literally like a 180 in your life. And maybe nobody sees it right now. I tell people all the time, 20 years ago, nobody. And I mean like my mom and my dad who love me and my sister who adores me, none of them would have seen this future for me. They, wow. I just wasn't in the cards. I, was, I never showed that I could live this life. So why would they think that it could be there? Um, and so, I'll, you know, I'll tell you the, I don't know if the short version of it, but I, I always try to introduce a little nuance to this. So I'm not just telling the same story over and over and over. But I grew up in a normal, really normal family. You know, my dad was a doctor. My mom was a manager in a bank. And um, everything was really good. My, my parents were together. Um, on the outside, it was perfect, actually, I would probably say. But inside, you know, my parents fought a lot. Um, mm. Kind of like screaming fights, broken plates kind of fighting a lot when I was growing up. And then when I was eight years old, my dad actually left us. Um, I woke up at night in the middle of the night to go get some water to drink. And I was leaving my room and I saw my mom and my dad talking in the living room and it was clear that it's not a good idea to go out there and uh, kind of interfere. Wow. So I went back to sleep and then the next day my mom woke my sister and I up and told us that um, our dad left. And you know, I was young, I was like eight or nine, my sister was six or five. and um. We didn't even understand what that meant. We're like, well, my dad worked all the time. We're like, he leaves all the time. She goes, no, 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 he's like left and he's not coming back. And we lost it. And, you know, it's very bizarre to think of your parent kind of abandoning you. Uh, but then it got weirder. My dad came back three to four days later and it was like nothing happened. So what it turned out has happened is my dad was cheating on my mom. He was going to move in with this other woman. And then he just came back. Nobody talked about it. Nobody ever mentioned anything about it. It was just, we were supposed to go forward as if nothing happened. And for me, it definitely, it created this really hate relationship with my dad that lasted mm -hmm. decades. Um, but more than that, it created this thing in my head that I have to be okay no matter what. I can't rely on anybody else. I've got to, I've got to have it together even when I don't. And that, that kept going for a really, really long time in my life. And, um, you know, my mom would talk to me about their troubles. I was like nine, 10. I just wasn't ready for all that. And, um, It made me grow up really, really fast. And I started rebelling against my dad all the time. So my dad was really good at school. He was really smart. I decided I wasn't going to do anything in school. I was going to suck at it and not do work. And I never, you know, until that time, I didn't have a reason to rebel against much. But now I had it. And it was like, fuck it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prove to my dad that he's a fucking asshole and I don't need him was kind of the approach I had to life. Mm. And then when my parents moved us, so we, I was... I was born in Israel, but when my parents moved us to the States and we lived outside of Chicago first, um, I found some real ways to rebel. I was always, I always felt weird. I always felt uncomfortable. But like I said, I learned as a kid that I have to keep it together. So I never showed anybody that. Right. And then when I was 14, um, I was in a sleepaway camp and these kids introduced me to alcohol. And, you know, I knew I wasn't really supposed to drink, but I didn't really care about that much because I was rebelling anyway. But Somebody like we're literally ha all hanging out at night and somebody hands me a handle of vodka and I take a couple of swigs and it tastes like ass. It's just fucking straight vodka is just terrible. Horrible. Yeah. Like, oh, I mean, like I can, <laughs> as I'm saying it right now, I can just feel the hot scalding vodka, yeah. like going down my throat and making me want to throw up. But I didn't throw up. And then 15 minutes later, I felt great. Mm. 
I wasn't nervous talking to girls. I didn't care what the fuck you thought of me. I was like on cloud nine. I didn't even know I was supposed to be able to feel that comfortable with myself. And so that started me drinking and I started drinking every weekend with my friends back home. And then we moved to upstate New York and then the same, pretty much the exact same thing happened, but with weed uh, sitting around, somebody passed me a joint, this girl that I thought was hot as hell and I wasn't going to say no to her. So she passes me that and now I'm smoking weed. And by the time I got to college and my parents and I hated each other by that point, mm. like the only conversations that happened at home with my parents when I was living in a home still in high school was like, you're a loser. Don't even go to college. You might as well go get a job. What the fuck are you doing? You're a waste of life. You don't do anything good. That's like my parents were happy. Some kids are, their parents are sad dropping them off at college. My parents were really happy that I was mm. finally out of their house. And, um, and I went all in bro. Like, smoked weed all day drank all day i just i didn't give a fuck i didn't care i just i wanted to numb out i wanted to find a way to feel okay i had a bunch of friends that smoked and drank with me it seemed normal like i would walk i don't know what your experience was like 18 to 22 or so but i would walk into my friend's dorm room and there would just be a cloud of smoke and -hmm. i would sit down and have some drinks and smoke some weed um and it just kept getting more and more and more intense in that way. Um, I had a breakup, which led to me trying harder drugs because now I felt really shitty about myself because the love of my life supposedly uh, left me. She cheated on me. It was like the, it was like a freaking movie. It was we were freshmen in college. She went to a different school and um, ended up hooking up with a senior. It was like I was like living some stupid um, rom com or something, and so right. I ended up like trying blow and acid and mushrooms and oh, wow. ecstasy and just whatever I could to just not feel. You know, I didn't yeah. literally since that time, since I was like eight or nine years old, I learned I got to keep my shit together. Feeling horrible is not okay. You know, keep your chin up. So I did, and uh, it got a little expensive. I started selling weed on the East Coast, and then um, I hated the East Coast. I know you're from there, so I'm sorry to say this, but uh, oh, no worries. <laughs> It's too cold, man. I um, it is, man. I'm from the desert. I'm from Israel. So I was like, what the fuck am I doing in the snow? And I decided to move. I moved out to LA. And again, the idea was I'll find the place where I'm comfortable in. Came out to LA. Things were okay for a minute. But then I got really hard into ecstasy. Mm. And, um, and I was back drinking a lot. And the thing was that when I came out to LA, something else shifted. Um, my parents were f- cool paying for school. But they were like, hey, you got to support yourself out there. School is expensive now. Yeah. So I started selling drugs. Like I got a job at first and it was, you know, this is back in the day. It was like an eight, nine, $10 an hour job. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was doing a lot of drugs and an $8 an hour job doesn't pay for a lot of drugs. So right. I started selling ecstasy and um, it was a really easy job, man. You know, the moment you get drugs, people come out of the woodwork because they want drugs. It's easy. And so I made good money. And I started selling more and more drugs and I made better money and I was doing ecstasy once or twice every week. Oh my God. And, wow. but like for a year and a half, two years straight, like we were just doing it all the time and selling it all of a sudden I had three, 400 friends, which if you remember for that kid that I was growing up as, that was amazing to have yeah. 300 friends, people that wanted me around. I know they only wanted me around for the drugs and the money, but it still felt really good that they pretended to want me around. And so that's when I got introduced to meth. One of my clients said, Hey, uh, can you get me some meth? And I was like, I don't what the fuck is meth. And they told me and I went and I got some and I sold it to them. And then pretty quickly after that, it was a final time in school. And somebody said, Hey, try some of this. It'll help you study. I had it. So 
um, I did some meth. I'd never tried it before and it worked really well. You know, it's like, I don't know if anybody listening right now has ever taken Adderall, Mm -hmm. but it's like Adderall on steroids, you know, staying up for three days and studying. That's not a problem on, on meth. So I used meth for that finals period and then I used it for the next finals period. Then I started using it for midterms and I started using it for papers. And next thing you know, within about six months, I'm using it every day. Um, Yeah. And I didn't know it when I started because, you know, what's that commercial from the eighties? Nobody says I want to be a drug addict when I grow up. Um, Mm. I didn't think that I would get addicted to it. I didn't really care in the beginning. Um, But for about three and a half, four years of my life, I used meth every single day. And I don't know, are you familiar with meth at all? Like, is that uh, I'm, a thing? I'm not, but I, I mean, I know of Not it, personally, but, but I'm saying like, yeah. have you ever known somebody who's on it? I have not, but, but for me, so my, my addiction when I was going through was Adderall. So I was taking Adderall oh, got every it, single got day. It. So when you painted that picture saying it's on steroids, I can literally imagine how addicting that could probably be. So just imagine like taking, what was your dose on Adderall? Uh, it was like 60 milligrams a day. Oh, so you're taking a good amount. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It was a lot. Imagine, imagine doubling that, taking it um, morning, afternoon, and evening, and just not sleeping, bro. Like, just not sleeping. Oh my gosh. Dude. Um, people think I'm lying when I say this, but I'm not. I would be up for an average of four days at a time. Holy shit, dude. Just not go to sleep at all. Um, what? You just start. You'd start doing it and then you'd just keep going because I was selling it. I had a lot. So it's not like I ever ran out. So we would right. be up for at least three days, max like five days. Average was about four. Oh my um, gosh. And initially it was really easy because the drugs did their job so well that I didn't have a problem being up for three days. The last, I would get tired in the end, but that would be it. Um, but in, but towards you know, like three years in, you're just, your body is destroyed. I was down to 124, 125 pounds. Um, literally like my, I was dating these girls, like their jeans, my girlfriend's jeans would fit me back then. It was just, I was like my whole body. I had no fat on me. It was, it was bad. Um, and, and so meth was the drug that brought me down, but it was also the drug that allowed me to become a really, really good drug dealer. So I had four guys selling for me. Um, we were moving a lot of drugs. I was making a lot of money. I had an apartment and a recording studio and a, you know, a car and a motorcycle. And we were traveling to Vegas all the time. Like I lived the life except for the fact that, you know, the only reason I had friends or anybody about, around me was because I had money and drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of like when I thought it just couldn't get worse. Um, but I was wrong. I mean, you know, that life, the shit you see in the movies is true. I got held up. I got robbed a few times. I got held up at gunpoint once. Uh, and like hogtied and all that shit. And um, it got really bad. It just, my life was so small. I literally had, um, you've seen Scarface, the movie, Absolutely, right? And yeah. so, so, you know, he has video cameras everywhere. And I was joking towards the end. It wasn't a joke, but it, it felt like a joke at the time. I had video cameras inside the studio. I had video cameras outside the studio. And literally after I got, after I cleaned my act up a little bit later on, I got to watch some of those videos and I would literally sit on a couch and just smoke meth, have people come to buy drugs from me, sit with them, get high with them. They would leave. I would keep getting high. More people would come and leave and go. And it, you could, it'd be like nine hours. And I did nothing but sit on that couch and smoke drugs. Um, and that went on for years. And, you know, in the middle of all of this, I, I got arrested. I got arrested a couple of times, but one of the arrests, was a really bad one. Um, 
I had a motorcycle accident. They found a bunch of drugs on me. They tried to get me to snitch and I wouldn't. Um, and so one Saturday morning SWAT team comes into my house, Beverly Hills um, SWAT team, eight o'clock in the morning on a Saturday, just like the movies. Holy and shit. yeah, and they arrest me and they arrest me. And um, my leg was broken. So they had to pick me up from my bed. And thankfully they didn't shoot me because I had a gun next to my bed. But um, they take me, they put me on the couch in my living room. And so I'm sitting broken leg about to get arrested right under a huge Scarface poster. Um, if anybody knows the one where he's like sitting there with his arm broken and, um, yep. and he's holding a gun. So I'm like literally under that. It's the biggest, <laughs> the funniest image. image. If I, I know it's so crazy. Um, and that was, you know, obviously everybody needs a stop sign. Like everybody needs a, a sign from the universe. You've gone as far as you can. Please turn around kind of a thing. That was mine. I had a broken leg. The cops were on me, literally on me. Um, I was facing 13 to 18 years in prison. I had 13 felony counts uh, on my record. And um, it was like, hey, you got to, something's got to change. And I didn't know what that was going to be, but it was very clear that life got, life went completely the wrong way at some point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, that is a crazy story like i knew a little bit about your story but i didn't know that far in the depth like literally doing that like every second of the day basically just sitting there and just like that was like your life like all like all drugs and stuff like that and one thing that i i want to unpack so much from that but like i know that you mentioned early on in the story that you know you you had this relationship with your father that led to this thing of just like i want to rebel against did that have like the parallel correlation to like i guess like all like trying to numb away and i know that you you said that you kind of alluded to it but like i guess the the picture that i'm trying to paint here is like how did that childhood trauma essentially like yeah shape your events because i think a lot of people don't realize that what they happen in their childhood can shape to events like that so so much i mean well the first thing is again like that that notion that i need to be okay on my own no matter what was always there so my parents obviously like for a lot of people my parents paid for college they paid for this that the other thing and you kind of feel like you're under the thumb of your parents when that's happening, right? Because they they kind of get to tell you what to do because they're paying you rent or paying for college or whatever. Right. And so whenever my parents would say that, that rebellious voice in my head would go, well, fuck you. I don't need your money. And actually, that was one of the main things that drove me to sell drugs is I didn't need my parents' money. Mm-hmm. I paid for my own apartment. I paid for my own car. I paid for everything of my own because I was making money. And mm-hmm. so that need to be independent, which actually lasted a really long time. And I'm now in the last 10, 12 years of my life, really coming to a place where I'm totally shifting the perspective I have and understanding so much that it's actually about having a community. It's actually about having people you rely on and can trust, not about having to stand on your own. Yes, sure. You can stand on your own if things come to that. Um, But that's not the idea. The idea is not to fully function separate from everybody else that's terrible i did that and i would end up in a place where a couple of times a week because i was surrounded by people all the time but a couple of times a week i'd have a few hours on my own and i remember just sitting there going like what the fuck what happened how did i end up in this place um Mm -hmm. had the money had the girls had the car had from the underground like crazy criminal world everything Mm -hmm. that people thought they wanted in that side and my life sucked. Mm-hmm. You know, my dad would call and I would 
not answer the phone once a week or once every other week, I would actually pick up when he would call and I would kind of lie. I would just lie and tell him, yeah, I'm still out here making music. I had the recording studio. So when they, when they would come to visit in LA, they would walk in, I'd clean up and it looked like a real recording studio. It's just that I, oh, I made music for one or two hours a day. The rest of the time I was just getting high. So oh gosh. I lied to everybody who was not in my immediate circle using with me constantly about everything I was doing. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That, that's crazy. And dude, I can, I can relate big time to that because when I was in that, you know, the, the, the cycle of addiction and just feeling uncomfortable with myself, I always like felt like I had to lie in order to, to not just lie to others, but lie to myself. Right. And that's kind of the same thing I'm getting from your story. And I love how, you know, you made that point on how it's really all about the community and the connection. Like, cause as humans, we're, we're wired to have that connection and to, to be with people. And you were, you were getting that through the drugs. Like if you think about it, right, you were around a bunch of people. So it was yeah. filling that need to you. And I can totally resonate on how addicting that can be. Like not just the drug sure. itself, but what the drug kind of brings you from oh, that yeah. perspective, you know? Well, we kind of had a crew. It was me and those four guys who sold for me. So every night, you know, look at 3 a.m., there aren't that many people awake. Right, right. It would be sure. us. It would be us. It would be four of us hanging out, getting high. If we'd go out somewhere, we'd all go out together. I had like a crew. And the thing is that, I was always operating from that state of mind. of like, fuck everybody else. I'm good on my own. Mm. And that creates a really, um, just a really uncomfortable person to be around, if I'm honest. Absolutely. And kind of an asshole, right? Because yeah. you only care about yourself from a self-preservation kind of point. And look, the people listening right now, it doesn't have to be this. It could be you go home after work and all you do is play video games until yes. it's time to go to bed. Or another thing that I realized after I kicked my drug addiction, porn. Like, mm -hmm. How many guys just get stuck on porn for hours a day yes. because, look, going and putting yourself out there and risking a girl saying no to you or a guy, whatever you're, you're into, but like um, going to somebody else that you care about or potentially care about and saying, hey, I'm vulnerable, I'm here, are you down to hang out? There's a potential that they say no. And if they say no, what does that mean about you? So a lot of people just hide. And right. whether you're hiding in alcohol or weed or drugs or, um, or porn, or gambling, or food. It doesn't fucking matter what you're hiding in. Mm -hmm. A lot of us hide. And the reason we hide is we don't want to be rejected. We don't want to be told that we're pieces of shit, etc. And yeah, of course, walking into a room when I was selling drugs and having like 20 people go, oh my God, Adi's here. Everybody, that felt really good. Yeah. But for all the wrong reasons, right? So right. Um, I always urge people, just don't run away from your shit. Just fucking look at it and go... Yes oh, damn, I don't want to be here. And that's cool. Right? It's okay that you ended up somewhere you don't want to be, but at least acknowledge it so you have a way to get out. Absolutely, dude. I, I cannot agree with you more in that you just got to like go towards the pain in order to heal it. Because if you numb it away, it's just going to build and build and build to the point, like, like you said before in your story, there's going to be that stop sign that's going to come on. It's like, it's either you can bring that up consciously through self-awareness and objective analysis of where you are and what you're doing, or you can just let it fester until the universe is going to throw it at you. And usually the latter is more painful. Yeah. A, it's more painful. B, I feel kind of lucky. So I got that sign with the SWAT team arrest and the accident. And again, some, for some people, that's a fucking terrible place to end up in. Um, <laughs> right, dude, yeah. I, w I was in jail, uh, almost a million dollar bail because of the gun, spent Jesus. a week in jail and then got out, fought the case for a year, got kicked out of rehab and almost lost everything again. Ended up getting a year in jail and it was only a year. 
because honestly, I was looking at way more than a decade, but I got a year and I was lucky to get a year. And so for some people, the idea of like, holy fucking shit, you did a year in jail and you had your leg broken and the SWAT team came and almost shot you in the head in your bed. That sounds insane enough. But here's the thing. You never know what your stop sign is. So like some people don't make it out of their stop sign. Some people become paralyzed by their stop sign. Some like literally right. physically paralyzed. Somebody, some people get shot and that's their stop sign. Some people die, right? right? Like for some people, the moment you realize it's actually too late and you're like, fuck, I just ruined the rest of my life. So that's part of the reason why I tell people, and you know, I, I have my book, The Abstinence Myth. Um, mm-hmm. And the reason I wrote my book is The Abstinence Myth, though, even though I quit meth, I say to people all the time, like, you don't have to be ready to quit to go get help. Mm. Um, because we kind of get to decide when we want that stop sign to come. We got, we kind of get to decide which stop sign we want to listen to and go, yeah, this is enough. Yeah. Right. Like I got arrested four times total before that other arrest. Um, I could have decided at any moment that that was enough. Right. I didn't have the wherewithal. I'm one of those dumb asses that just like, I need to get hit over the head with a two by four. (laughs) before I really realize that it's time to change. And part of the reason I do the work now for people is I hope I can make, make it possible for some people to go get help, say out loud that they need it without having to go as far down as I did. Dude, absolutely. And that's why I love your story so much because I, I don't want people to go down the path as like you said, like just so much hurt and then have that point where they're missing the stop signs, which I honestly, I was blown away by hearing that because I never really thought about that because for example, it could have been any time in your life that stop sign. That stop sign could be, you know, that time you broke up with your girlfriend. Maybe that could have been the stop sign, but clearly it went on longer from that. And so I know there's probably our listeners are on the edge of our seats being like, so where is he now? Like, like what, what is this? <laughs> right, like, right. How did he actually come to the consciousness? So I guess like to, to progress the story, like one, how did you actually put into process saying like, this is a stop sign. I need to change. Mm. What was that process of transformation like? And then where yeah. are you like now, just so our listeners can kind of say like, holy shit, sure. like this is the same guy I listened to in the beginning of the podcast and he's doing all yeah, this. Yeah. So look, it wasn't as clear road as, as people would want it to be. I can make it a clear road right now because I know the story in hindsight is 2020. Yes. But so I went to rehab after that arrest. I, uh, like I said, I had a $750,000 bail. My parents were trying to come up with 75 grand to get me out of jail. And I was like, don't even think about it. Let me sit here. I sat there for a week and my bail got lowered. We went in front of the judge and, um, and then I got out. And then the question is, okay, what are you going to do while you're out? Because this case is still happening, right? You hear about this all the time in, in, uh, in raps or in movies, but like I was out on bail. Mm-hmm. which means I can't get in trouble. I got to clean my act up. I got to show up every month to court. So my lawyer and this other consultant said, you got to go to rehab. Now I'd had clients go to rehab. I'd heard of rehab. I didn't know what the hell that meant, but my lawyer pitched it to me really easy. He said, look, if you don't go to rehab and quit your drugs and get cleaned up, the judge is sending you away for like 15, 20 years. Oh my God. Um, I had literally 13 felony counts, including the gun, including like nine different drug charges. Um, I had a lock pick. I don't know if that's true in Wisconsin and uh, where you're at, but like for everybody listening, like owning a lock pick is apparently illegal. You have to have a license to have one of those. Oh, so fuck, I, I did not know that. And anyway, there was a ton of shit in my house that got me in trouble. And um, so I was looking at a lot of time, like potentially 20 years. And that's what they said is, you know, you got to go to rehab. So I went to rehab and it just felt to me like, okay, well, that's a solution. I'll be in rehab. Everything will be fine. These guys will get off my back. But I hadn't been sober. I hadn't been without using 
Mm-hmm. Since I was 14 for more than like a day or two, mm. maybe three, you know, when it first, first started and I was drinking. So I didn't really know how to live without using. So I stayed kind of sober for that whole month. I was taking a Tylenol PM to help me go to sleep because I was really anxious at nights. But other than that, I was sober for that week, for that month. And then they let me go to work. And for those of you not watching us right now, I put work in air quotes because work <laughs> was my recording studio, but I wasn't really working. I just was making music at the time. I was selling drugs out of it. So mm-hmm. within a couple of days, I found some drugs and I was back to using within a week. Now, wow. the problem was I'm in rehab using, so I would have to go back to rehab every day after work. Mm. And in uh, the entire time, you know, every month, go back to court and keep fighting the case. And so... One day I come back into the rehab and they test me and they find that I've been using and they kick me out on the spot. Now I have a lot of trouble with the idea that rehabs kick people out for using because it's kind of why you're in there. Yep. But they did and they kicked me out. I had nowhere to go. I had my car and other than that, I was homeless. So I went back to my studio and then my dad called and you're asking about the moment of transformation. My moment of transformation actually came during a conversation with my, um, with my dad, he called and he would call every morning and check in on me. By the way, if you're catching on, the blessing from that stop sign for me was that arrest led to the first time that I got honest with my family about what was really going on. Mm-hmm. And for the first time in literally 20 years, we were having a relationship again. Mm-hmm. So now my dad and I are talking every morning. We're pretty good with each other. Life is nice. You know, my family comes to visit, all this stuff that hasn't happened in literally 10 years. But my dad calls and I know I just got kicked out of rehab and all the, the lies that I'm about to tell him are in my head. I was going to tell him the studio was really far away from the rehab and I was driving a lot. So I needed to move somewhere closer. So I checked myself out of that rehab and I was going to stay in the studio for a little bit while I got my stuff together and figured out another rehab to go to. And as I'm telling him that lie, this voice comes in my head. And uh, I just talked to somebody recently and this was that internal voice that said, Hey, just, just be honest, right? Your family knows everything that happened with the drugs and the dealing and everything. You're, you haven't been lying to them. They didn't know about this using thing. Just fess up, just own up to it. Mm. And I remember, like, I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a situation where you're lying to your parents or you're lying to somebody you care about a lot and you just, you feel anxious and it's hard to breathe and you got yeah. this bowling ball in your stomach. And after a while you get used to that feeling, but I had a little break when I wasn't used to it because my parents knew everything. My life sucked, but my parents knew everything that was going on. And so that voice was talking to me. And in the middle of lying to him, I decided to stop. And I just said, you know what, dad, um, that's not true. I didn't check myself out of rehab. I just got kicked out. Mm. Um, they tested me and they found out that I've been using, I've been using for the last two months. And it was the first time in my life ever that I didn't give excuses. I didn't tell them why. There was no rationalization. It was just like, hey, I fucked up. I've been using, I got kicked out of rehab. Mm. That's actually what's going on. And so I had a sense, like an immediate sense of relief. I was owning up to my shit. I was taking responsibility. I was accountable. I felt much better telling the truth than lying. Wow. The only problem was that now I was telling my parents the truth and the truth <laughs> fucking sucked. So my dad starts <laughs> screaming at me on the phone. Mm. Like, and my dad didn't yell, but my screaming at me, he's like, the fuck is wrong with you? You just threw away three months of like $30,000. You're facing 20 years in prison. You just ruined your chance of getting out. What are you, you're insane. What the hell is wrong with you? And then he ended it with, what the hell do you expect us to do now? 
And because I had just been honest and my dad gave me that question, it was a perfect opportunity for me to actually look and go, you know what? You can't do anything. Mm. There's nothing you can do. This is my mess. I have to clean it up myself. Wow. And that was the first time I even thought of a thought like that, let alone um, the first time I spoke it out loud, let alone to my dad. And it kind of, we just ended the conversation pretty much. I'm like, give me a moment. Give me, let me figure this out. I'm going to fix this. Mm. And now it was on me. Now, just to be honest, because people are listening right now who are in tough situations in their own life, I'm not going to lie to you and tell you I got cleaned up and sober in the moment. I didn't. I used every day for the next two weeks. I crashed on a girl's couch who then let me sleep in her bed and we were getting high every night. But the whole time I was trying to plan what the next step is. Because here's the thing. I didn't know how to not be using all the fucking time out in the world, but mm -hmm. I knew I had to figure it out. Mm -hmm. So I kept looking. I found my next rehab. Checked myself in. I was so messed up when I went to the interview. I was wearing sunglasses at 8.30 at night because I didn't want them to see my eyes as if wearing sunglasses at 8.30 right. and not the dead giveaway that you're fucked up, right? Right. Um, but I found a place. I checked myself in. First of all, it was a lot cheaper, which made me feel good. I didn't like the fact that my parents were dropping $10,000 a month on my rehab. But here's the thing. Because I took responsibility and I was accountable, when I showed up to that second rehab, I was serious. Mm. And honestly, it barely even mattered what they were going to do. As long as they provided a safe environment that I could function in, mm -hmm. I was going to do whatever I need to do to stay clean. And so I was in that place for eight months, stayed sober the whole eight months, oh, wow. was, going to, was going back to court every single month with my dad or my mom who were coming to visit from New York. And I got, I got better and better and better and healthier and healthier and healthier. And the judge saw it. And, um, and so when it came time to sentencing, I had eight or nine months sober. My family and friends from the, from the house that I was in and all that kind of stuff were there with me, supporting me. I had like 12 people with me in court. Um, and I was still facing nine felonies. And the, the smallest amount of time that the DA was willing to give me was three years, which was much better than 18, by the way. But it was still a lot, right? For a 25-year-old guy to go away for three years is a lot of time. Fuck yeah. So we decided to kind of put ourselves at the mercy of the court and the judge went away and he came back and he gave me one year, actually right under one year, 364 days. Wow. Because if you get a year, you go to prison. If you get under a year, you go to jail, like literally oh. LA County jail. Jail. So he, he let me off, essentially. He kind of said to me, look, I'm going to give you this, but this is a chance. And he put this thing over my head called a suspended sentence, a seven-year suspended sentence. And he said, if you fuck this up, you have seven years waiting for you in addition to whatever else you mess up. Jeez. Um, and I had drug testing and, and probation and all this stuff. And so I felt like I won, to be perfectly honest, because I did the work and I got the lowest sentence anybody could imagine me getting. Yeah. Oh, that's a win. Yeah, for sure. But then I had to go to jail. Yeah, fuck. And <laughs> I got to tell you, bro, I mean, you see the stuff, you see the movies, you see the way it looks. That's what it is. It's just, it's hard for you to imagine what it's actually to feel like. But, you know, imagine you and 50 guys in a room. They tell you to take your clothes off and take a shower. And then, like, they do a cavity search. And then they uh, dress you and walk you into this place. We didn't even get a room for, like, 24 to 48 hours. So we're sleeping on the floor with, like, toilet paper as our, um, as our pillows. And it sucked. Like, jail fucking sucks. I always, this is the way I describe jail. Jail is the only place where you can get dehumanized 
be scared and be bored all at the same time. Wow. Yeah. Um, you, f- you feel like a caged animal. Uh, I was in two fights in the year that I was there and which was good. That's not a lot, but you know, still two fights. And, mm. um, and the days just go so slow. Mm. So you're bored out of your mind. So everything is happening at the same time and it's terrible. And, you know, to get to where I am right now, when I got out after a year, um, I said to myself, I, I will do whatever I have to do in my life to never end up back in that place. Mm. Mm-hmm. And um, I was willing to wash toilets, be a janitor. I didn't care. what. And so I tried. I tried to apply to mall jobs and, and work in stores. And nobody would hire me because I was a nine-time convicted felon. Right, right. So I tried for six to nine months. I tried to get hired at the mall, couldn't get a job. The Apple store was opening, wouldn't hire me. All these things. And eventually, I, oh, eventually I did the only thing that I knew how to do. And um, that was go back to school. I was mm. always really good at school even though I rebelled against it big time when I was younger, Mm -hmm. because again, my parents really wanted me to be in school and anything my parents wanted, I didn't want to do. So, um, but I decided to go back to school because it was the only thing I had available to me. Mm -hmm. So I went, it was weird. It's a weird transition to go from being a drug dealer that gets to tell people whatever they want to do to sitting in a class and having to do homework. Um, But again, remember that thing, I was going to do whatever I need to do to not go back to jail. So I sat and I did homework. And then I remember that I'm really good at school. And I loved it. And I, I was a 4.0 student in this master's program at, uh, at Cal State Long Beach. And that was amazing. And uh, because I did so well and I got along with my professors and my advisors so well, and they all had to find out about my court case because I needed letters of rec to make sure that I'm doing okay every six months. Mm-hmm. They uh, went to bat for me and I got, I was the only student at the time. I don't know if that's still true, but the only student at the time that got from Cal State Long Beach master's program to the UCLA PhD program, which is one of the top Damn, dude, psychology PhD yeah. programs in the country. And, and I kept kicking ass there. And I was literally studying one thing. I wanted to study addiction. I wanted to understand what was going on. And, mm. um, and that was it, man. You know, like when I got to UCLA, I really felt like it had come full circle. I'd, I'd kind of like gone back to a place where nobody expected me to go to given where I'd been. And even if I hadn't become a meth if I hadn't been addicted to meth and I didn't go to jail and all that stuff didn't happen, ending up in that program would have still been a pretty big win. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it felt good. It felt like I was now, like I'd made up for the time that I'd lost. And now, and what I've been doing for the last 10, 11 years of my life, 12 years, is once I under- I felt like I understood addiction, my goal was like, okay, now how do I go out there and help as many people as possible? Yes. And so started writing for publications online, including psychology today, started doing a lot of TV stuff, a lot of, um, really a lot of work trying to help people who are stuck get unstuck. And that's how we're here today. Yeah. Hell yeah, man. That's it's exactly why I wanted you on the podcast is we were talking about like who are the people who are listening to it. It's exactly what you just said. The people who are stuck and want to get unstuck. And again, I know I said this before the show, but I'll say it again, dude, like honestly, all the props in the world to you for making the transformation in your life. I think that is honestly one of the most incredible stories I've heard and it just speaks measures to you know your your will to become you know not just the best version of yourself but yourself at your core right because that's that's what we're all trying to get to is we're all just trying to get to who we really are at our core which is you know a human being who loves and wants to give and contribute and you took your pain and your your suffering part of addiction and having that that whole situation and now you're helping people in that situation to do that and mm. i think it's such a beautiful thing and one thing i want to touch on from your story which i thought was so Please. crucial 
was when you said you were like, I, I just took ownership for where I was at. I said, I need to fix this. You said, I don't need your help. I need to figure this out on my own. And I totally a thousand percent agree. Like the moment that my life changed was the same time when I took accountability for my shit. And I want to bring this back to something that you told me before the podcast, which is something that you say called fuck shame. And so yeah. we talk on this podcast all the time, take accountability for your life. I've seen it personally, and I'm sure you've probably seen that. He's like, when you take accountability, you look at all of your shit, all the yeah. bad stuff that you've created. And then you get these feelings of shame that come up that says like, oh, wow, like you suck. You're not good. Like, what the fuck? Mm. Like, I can't believe you're fucking doing all this stuff. But you say, right. fuck shame. So how do you view shame? And then how do you avoid the shame that comes with exposing yourself to the realities of all the shit that you've created in your life, so to say, so you can make a transformation like you did in your life? That's a great question. And thank you for asking. And uh, let me just tell all your listeners that if you go to ignited.com, I-G-N-T-D.com, uh, and you give us your email, we will send you a, what I call the ignited wheel of life. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to talk about that here in a second. But the idea is, look, you're living in a reality of some sort and you can avoid it and pretend like it's not existing or you can make peace with it and then go change whatever you want. So, my work centers on three principles. If you read my book, which you can go mm-hmm. to theabstinencemyth.com and we're giving it away if you pay for shipping and handling. Um, they're three main principles, honest exploration, radical acceptance, and individualized transformation. Mm-hmm. And honest exploration is what you get to do with this wheel. What do I mean by that? Um, you, get to, you get to actually look at your life. Mm-hmm. You get to actually look at your life and you get to say, okay, what am I? There are 10 different areas of life that we assess in the wheel and you'll get to see them and there's a little exercise attached. When you get to understand what's really happening, yeah, of course you sometimes see shit you don't fucking like because if you liked it all, we wouldn't be talking right now. Right. But, but that's just true. So we can run away from it and you can go get fucked up or go disappear into porn for a while or pretend like talking to some girl, some guy is going to distract you from it. But if you hate your life, you hate your life. Mm-hmm. So my idea is honest exploration. First of all, why are you having this feeling? What don't you like about your life? Where is it coming from? Um, figure that out first. Once you do that, a lot of people right away, because everybody tries to fix their life first, but if you don't really know what's wrong, you don't know what to fix. So first of all, you yes. got to figure out what that is. Second is radical acceptance. Mm-hmm. And that's where fuck shame comes in. Look, do I wish that my dad didn't cheat on my mom and leave us when I was eight or nine? Of course. Do I have a fucking way of changing it? No. Mm-hmm. So I can sit here and mope about it or I can say, you know what? Sucked, but it's also reality for me. Mm-hmm. So what do I do moving forward? How do, I, how do I not live my life to piss off my dad who's not living my fucking life? That's my life. My, my dad didn't end up in jail for a year. I ended up in jail for a year. Mm-hmm. I ended up disconnected from my family and feeling unloved for a decade, right? That's not him. Mm-hmm. Could there have been things my parents did better? Of course. But like the moment you start realizing, oh shit, this is my life. Um, radical acceptance is about saying, you know what? Fuck the shame I feel about this. Mm-hmm. Fuck how other people feel about it. They're not living my life. I need to own my shit. I'm not a bad person for doing this stuff. I'm not doomed to be a failure. I ended up where I ended up because of the actions I took and what happened to me earlier in life and where I'm at. Now, once you balance that out and you start looking around, you go, oh, now I can fix shit. Mm-hmm. And I mean it from the deepest level. Like if I'm an asshole to other people, guess what? Learn how to be fucking nice. <laughs> yeah. It's not unchangeable. 
you're an asshole to people. What does that mean? Well, I don't take them into account. I, I never think of anybody first before myself. Um, I have no tact. I don't, I tell people exactly what I think of them in the moment without thinking of their feelings. Okay. Well, guess what? Get some training, right? Mm-hmm. Learn how to communicate better. Um, I'm, I'm really forgetful. That's one of my things always. And so I would really piss people off being forgetful. Guess mm-hmm. what? Get better at it. Get some training, get some learning. Um, all that stuff is stuff you can address once you're not running away from it. I always mm-hmm. talk to my clients. There's been this monster chasing us our whole lives. Those of us who know what it means like to run away and disconnect. It's like this monster chasing us. And the lie that we told ourselves was that we can outrun the monster. Yes. But it's in us. It's in our heads. So we're yes. never running it off. Like, I don't care where you move to. I don't care what you change. So what I tell everybody is the point I'm trying to get to you is to this. Stop. Realize there's a monster behind you. Then turn around and be like, hey, I'm here with you. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not running anymore. I'm sitting here. So let's figure this shit out. Let's figure out what's wrong. What do I hate about myself? What do I hate about my, the way I grew up? And then comes the third principle, which is individualized transformation. Once you've done one, honest exploration, you know why you're experiencing it. Two, radical acceptance. And you've come to terms with it and stopped feeling ashamed and running away from it. Now you get to fucking change it. Yeah. Now you get to go in. Okay, well, I have these things in my life I want to change. What tools are available for that? How can I create change in my life? And when you do that, I'll tell you, I'm now 20 years on the other side of it. Um, I meant it when I said in the beginning, there was not a single person in my life, including the people that loved me the most, who could have even dreamt that I would be on a podcast helping other people overcome addiction because somehow over the last 20 years, I went from a meth-addicted loser who couldn't hold a job ex-con to a guy that people turn to as an expert in self-change and uh, in addiction. Those two people were not related. Tony right. Robbins says this all the time. If you've ever seen him speak, he says, um, yes. he says, I made this Tony. Yeah. This yeah. Tony, I wasn't born this fucking Tony. I made this guy. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Tony's not that fucking special. We can all make the version of ourselves we want. The only difference is the belief that you have it available and then of course finding models and role models and people that you can look up to and learn from a thousand percent man and that is one of my favorite tony robbins quotes actually of all time that you said that so i literally got chills running up and down my spine Mm. just hearing that because it's so true it's like you 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 can be the person that you want to be you just have to to work assess that assess the problem find the models like you said and then do the work to do it and the the endless possibilities of who you can become are out there. It's just, who do you want to be? And you can do that. And, and I think it's really, really valuable to add on to that is that a lot of people like to your point when you're like, I'm forgetful or I'm an asshole. A lot of people like think that's fixed, right? But you demonstrate through the process that you laid out and your story that we're just so malleable. We can learn, we can adapt and we can go through the process of transformation. And if we're not afraid of that monster that's inside of us, Oh man, we can, we can create massive change in our life. And you're an example for that. And dude, I cannot believe we're at the end of the podcast already because I literally want to keep talking with you. So, I mean, (laughs) if if you are interested to do another episode in the future, I'd love to. Anytime, Um, man. Because I thought this was amazing. I thought your story was incredible. The transformation that you made is incredible. And even that process laid out, which is awesome. And I encourage all of our listeners to go to his website, which I'm going to ask him what it is again. Um, Go to the website. Ignited.com, I-G-N-T-D.com. Awesome. Yes. Go to the website, download the, the resource in there, dig into this man's world because I, 
I'm very, very certain that if you can do the work that he's laying out there, you can make massive transformation in your life. 100%. So there's a, there's your website. And then I know you also have a podcast. And then again, I know you have your book. Um, so where can our listeners listen to your podcast, dig into your world a little more, order the book if they're interested and anything else that you think would be valuable for our listeners to help create the change in their lives? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, ignited.com forward slash podcast is the easiest place to listen to the podcast, but we're the name of the podcast is Ignited. You can find that on uh, on iTunes or um, whatever the podcast app or Spotify. We're on Spotify too. Mm-hmm. Um, just hit a million downloads. Pretty excited about oh, that. Congrats, man! And, that is uh, amazing. Thank, thank you, man. And so we have amazing guests. Um, we I love doing that podcast. And you know, next time when I come by, maybe we can talk about relationships because yes. what people will get exposed to on the podcast that I do with my wife primarily is you can have the same sort of transformation I'm talking about internally with your partner, a lot of us just want to belong and feel like we're loved and, and there's somebody that cares about us. Mm. But we bring the same shit that we talk to ourselves in our own heads to our relationships and then we wonder why they don't work out. Yes. Um, and the book is called The Abstinence Myth, literally theabstinencemyth.com and uh, you can get it there or on Amazon if you feel like it. Awesome, awesome, yes. And, and like I said again, dig into this guy's world, learn his stuff. If you want to make a change in your life, he will help you get there for sure. I mean, come join us. is incredible. Come, yes, come join us. Absolutely. And so for my last question here, Adi, what does fulfillment mean to you and what fulfills mm. you in life? You know, man, seeing the impact. Mm. That's, um, I live for the messaging, the emails and the letters I get from people saying, I thought I was done for. I thought there was no way to get better. And then I heard you on a podcast or I read a thing you did or, whatever they got exposed to. And they said, I finally have hope. And then every once in a while, I get the emails that said, I've made all the changes in my life that you've talked about. And I get to live this amazing life. My family got me back. I'm back. I, I've got my job back. All these things. That's it. That's what I live for, man. And my family. Yeah, dude, you're fucking incredible, man. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, All right, everyone. Thank you so thank much, you for, so much me, for listening to this episode of the Art of Fulfillment podcast. We really appreciate you taking the time at your day to not only listen to this podcast, but to actually invest the time into yourself to create a fulfilling life. Because if you're here wanting to pursue that knowledge and really create the life that you want to live, you're going to do it because you're already taking the first step in seeking that knowledge. And don't forget, knowledge is only potential power. You have to apply the knowledge in order to make it real power. So thank you so much for listening. If you want to send us a DM or ask us a question about anything in life, whether it's finding your passion or uh, building mental toughness, creating fulfillment, anything in the personal development field, I am more than happy to answer your questions. And you can do that by DMing, DMing me a message on Instagram at Joe Corsione or on our official Instagram page at Art of Fulfillment. We love connecting with you guys. We love helping all of you and helping you create a fulfilling life, even if that means just a one-on-one conversation outside of this podcast. So be sure to do that if you have any questions. And remember, we're here every single Wednesday. And don't forget, most importantly, create a fulfilling life for yourself. Thank you and take care.